Hello and welcome to the Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today, as we steam towards the conclusion of Stanley's transition from soldier to civilian, we have a bonus episode that includes some good writing and reflection on the context for the King's War and the history that shaped it. To begin, I'll talk about Robert Gottlieb. Gottlieb, a prominent part of the publishing world, is the former president, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Alfred A. Knopf and the former editor of The New Yorker magazine. He has contributed to the New York Review of Books, the New York Times Book Review, the New Yorker magazine, and the New York Observer where he's been a dance critic for a number of years. In 2016, Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud published Gottlieb's memoir, aptly titled Avid Reader, A Life. I just finished reading Avid Reader, and I got to it after hearing an interview with Robert Gottlieb about a new documentary about Gottlieb and one of his very prominent writers, Robert Caro. I began reading Caro almost 50 years ago with the publication of his first book, The Power Broker, where he chronicles the life of the amazing Robert Moses in New York City and New York State. Over the ensuing decades to today, I have read all of Carol's books about LBJ, and of course, like many others, am awaiting the publication of his fifth book about LBJ, which is about Johnson and the Vietnam War. Throughout the Carol years, although I've never seen him in person, I've listened to great interviews and discussions about his work, and I've read a small book that he wrote about how he writes. And on recent trips to New York City, where I learned that he had an office near Columbus Circle and was a devotee of the Cosmic Diner on the edge of the theater district, I, of course, lurked in various spots, hoping to see him say hello, maybe grab an autograph. And on our most recent trip to New York, which was last October, we had the joy of visiting the newly renovated New York Historical Society, which is on the Upper West Side at the edge of Central Park. And it has a permanent exhibit of Caro's work, his typewriters, his notes, incredible things that were just a joy to discover. Throughout Gottlieb's extensive career as an editor and publisher, he worked with a number of literary agents, including a favorite, a woman named Candida Donatio. Gottlieb, who will be 92 this year, wrote about Candida, where he said, 
Candida and I were only about a year apart in age, and almost instantly we became close, despite the radical difference in our backgrounds and temperaments. Candida was Sicilian. She liked to boast, particularly about her taste for Sicilian cold revenge. Gottlieb continued, On August 29th of 1957, Candida sent me a note that read, quote, Here is the script of Catch 18 by Joseph Heller, about which we talked yesterday. I've been watching Heller ever since the publication of Chapter 1 in New World Writing about a year ago. He's published a good bit in the Atlantic Monthly and Esquire. I'll tell you more about him when I see you at lunch next week. As ever, Candida. About 75 pages of manuscript came with it, and I was knocked out by the voice, the humor, the anger. We offered Joe $500 as an option payment. This was only months after Jack Goodman's death, and the editorial department had developed no real modus operandi. I suppose I just said, I want to do this, and there was nobody interested enough to say no. Joe and Candida decided to wait until there was enough of a manuscript to warrant an actual contract. When I met Joe for the first time, for lunch at a hearty restaurant near our offices, he came as a big surprise. I expected a funny guy full of spark and ginger, but what I got was more or less a man in a gray flannel suit. He was working as an ad executive at McCall's, and he looked it and sounded it. I found him wary which shouldn't have been a surprise given the paranoid slant of much of his book. Noncommittal, clearly giving me the once-over. He told me later he found me nervous and ridiculously young. I was only eight years younger than he was, but he was a mature ex-vet, a former college teacher, and a successful business executive. I was 26, still looking much younger than I was, and with no track record as an editor or publisher. Once his book was completed three or so years after we first met, I tore into it, relaxed about doing so because I had no notion that I was dealing with what would turn out to be a sacred text, or that Joe would turn out to be as talented an editor as he was a writer, and absolutely without writer ego. On Catch, as on all the other books we worked on together, he was sharp, tireless, and ruthless with himself, whether we were dealing with a word, sentence, passage of dialogue, or scene. We labored like two surgeons poised over a patient under anesthesia. You, as faithful followers of our hero, the Silver King, may remember that Heller and Stanley were bombardiers working in the Army Air Corps. And they were born the same year, 1923, within the same week. You may also recall that I've spoken about Heller's book that was the sequel to Catch-22, the book entitled Closing Time. Closing Time was published by Simon & Schuster in 1994. And this is how the book jacket described what was ahead. In a novel as darkly comic and audaciously ambitious as was Catch-22, Joseph Heller has dared to write the sequel to his American classic, using many of Catch-22's characters, now older, if not wiser, to deftly satirize the realities and the myths of America in the half-century since they fought World War II. 
1961, Joseph Heller's remarkable first novel made its way immediately into the American psyche and came to symbolize the absurdity of war and of life. Catch-22 was recognized overnight as a classic and has sold nearly 10 million copies in the United States alone. It remains perhaps the funniest and the most serious novel ever written about war. An apocalyptic masterpiece in the words of one reviewer. Now, 33 years later, Joseph Heller has written the sequel. You don't have to have read Catch-22, but then who on earth hasn't, to enjoy Closing Time, which is a fully independent companion work. A comic masterpiece in its own right, in which Heller spears the inflated balloons of our national consciousness, the absurdity of our politics, the decline of society in our great cities, the greed and hypocrisy of our business and culture, with the same ferocious humor that he used against the conventional view of warfare. His characters are those of Catch-22, coming to the end of their lives and the century, as is the entire generation that fought in World War II. Yossarian and Milo Minderbinder, the chaplain, and such newcomers as little Sammy Singer and Giant Lou, all linked this time in the uneasy peace and old age, fighting not the Germans this time, but the end. Closing Time is outrageously funny and totally serious, and as brilliant and successful as Catch-22 itself, a funhouse mirror that captures at once grotesquely and accurately the truth about ourselves. The Silver King died in 1990, four years before Closing Time was published, and Heller died in 1999 at 76 five years after its publication. Closing time begins with a chapter called Sammy. That's Sammy Singer, and he was a journalist. And I couldn't help reflect on the fact that he was a singer and Stanley was a Silverfield, two Air Corps veterans with the same initials. Sammy begins. When people our age speak of the war, it is not of Vietnam, but of the one that broke out more than a half century ago, swept in almost all the world. It was raging more than two years before we even got into it. More than 20 million Russians, they say, had perished by the time we invaded at Normandy. The tide had already been turned at Stalingrad before we set foot on the continent, and the Battle of Britain had already been won. Yet a million Americans were casualties of battle before it was over. 300,000 of us were killed in combat. Some 2,300 alone died at Pearl Harbor on that single day of infamy, almost half a century back, and more than 2,500 others were wounded. A greater number of military casualties on just that single day than the total in all but the longest, bloodiest engagements in the Pacific, more than on D-Day in France. No wonder we finally went in. Thank God for the atomic bomb. I rejoiced with the rest of the civilized Western world almost half a century ago when I read the Banner newspaper headlines and learned it had exploded. By then I was already back and out, unharmed and as an ex-GI, much better off than before. I could go to college. I did go and even taught college for two years in Pennsylvania, then returned to New York and in a while found work as an advertising copywriter in the promotion department of Time magazine. 
in only 20 years from now, certainly not longer, newspapers across the country will be printing photographs of their oldest local living veterans of that war who are taking part in the sparse parades on the patriotic holidays. The parades are sparse already. I never marched. I don't think my father did either. Way, way back when I was still a kid, crazy Henry Markowitz, an old janitor of my father's generation, in the apartment house across the street, would, on Armistice Day and Memorial Day, dig out and don his antique World War I Army uniform, even down to the ragged leggings of the earlier Great War, and all that day strut on the sidewalk back and forth from the Norton's Point trolley tracks on Railroad Avenue to the candy store and soda fountain at the corner of Surf Avenue which was nearer the ocean, showing off old Henry Markowitz, like my father back then. Old Henry Markowitz probably was not much past 40. Would bark commands out till hoarse to the tired women trudging home on thick legs to their small apartments, carrying brown bags from the grocery or butcher who paid him no mind. His two embarrassed daughters ignored him too, little girls, the younger my own age, the other a year or so older. He was shell-shocked, some said, but I do not think that was true. I do not think we even knew what shell-shocked meant. There were no elevators then in our brick apartment houses, which were three and four stories high, and for the aging and the elderly, climbing steps going home could be hell. In the cellars, you'd find coal delivered by truck and spilled noisily by gravity down a metal chute. You'd find a furnace and boiler and also a janitor who might live in the building or not and whom, in intimidation more than honor, we always spoke of respectfully by his surname with the title Mr. because he kept watch for the landlord of whom almost all of us then, as some of us now, were always at least a little bit in fear. Sammy continued, in those 20 more years, we will all look pretty bad in the newspaper pictures and television clips, kind of strange, like people in a different world, ancient and doddering, balding and seeming perhaps a little bit idiotic, shrunken with toothless smiles in collapsed, wrinkled cheeks. People I know are already dying, and others I've known are already dead. We don't look that beautiful now. We wear glasses and are growing hard of hearing. We sometimes talk too much, repeat ourselves. Things grow on us. Even the most minor bruises take longer to heal and leave telltale traces. And soon after that, there will be no more left of us. Only records and mementos for others and the images they chance to evoke. Someday, one of the children... I adopted them legally, with their consent, of course, or one of my grown grandchildren may happen upon my gunner's wings or air medal, my shoulder patch of sergeant's stripes, or, or that boyish snapshot of me, little Sammy Singer, the best speller of his age in Coney Island and always near the top of his grade in arithmetic, elementary algebra, and plain geometry. In my fleecy winter flight jacket and my parachute harness, taken overseas close to 50 years back on the island off Pianosa, off the western shore of Italy. We are sitting with smiles for the camera near a plane in early daylight on a low stack of unfused thousand-pound bombs, waiting for the signal to start up for another mission. With our bombardier for that day, a captain, I remember, looking on at us from the background. He was a rambunctious and impulsive Armenian, often a little bit frightening, 
unable to learn how to navigate in the accelerated course thrown at him unexpectedly in operational training at the air base in Columbia, South Carolina, where a group of us had been brought together as a temporary crew to train for combat and fly a plane overseas into the theater of war. The pilot was a sober Texan named Appleby, who was very methodical and very good, God bless him, and the two were very quickly not getting along. My feelings lay with Yossarian, who was humorous and quick, a bit wild, but, like me, a big city boy who would rather die than be killed, he said only half-jokingly one time near the end, and had made up his mind to live forever or at least die trying. I could identify with that. From him I learned to say no. When they offered me another stripe as a promotion and another cluster to my air medal to fly ten more missions, I turned them down and they sent me home. I kept all the way out of his disagreements with Appleby because I was timid, short, and enlisted man, and a Jew. It was my nature then always to make sure of my ground with new people before expressing myself, although in principle at least, if not always with the confidence I longed for, I thought myself the equal of all the others, the officers too, even of that big outspoken Armenian bombardier who kept joking crazily that he was really an Assyrian and already practically extinct. I was better read than all of them, I saw, and the best speller too, and smart enough certainly never to stress those points. Inevitably, Yosarian got lost on every one of the night missions we flew in our operational training flights over South Carolina and Georgia. It became a joke. From the other enlisted crew I met in the barracks and mess hall, I learned that all of their bombardiers turned navigators got lost on all of their night training flights too, and that became another joke. The third officer in our crew was a shy co-pilot named Kraft, who, promoted to pilot overseas, was shot down by flak on a mission over Ferrara in northern Italy when his flight went over the bridge there in a second pass and was killed. Yossarian, the lead bombardier who'd failed to drop the first time, got a medal for that one for going round the second time when he saw the others had missed and the bridge there was still undamaged. On those navigational training missions in South Carolina, Appleby would find the way back for us safely with his radio compass. One black night we were lost and had no radio compass for more than an hour. There was electrical interference from storms nearby, and to this day I clearly hear Yossarian's voice on the intercom saying, quote, I see the bank of a river down there. Turn left and cross it, and I'll pick up a landmark on the other side, end quote. The bank of that river turned out to be the shore of the Atlantic Ocean, and we were on our way to Africa. Appleby lost patience once more and took over after another half hour, and when he finally pieced together the radio signals to bring us back to our field, there was only enough fuel left to carry us from the landing strip to our plane stand. The engines died before they could be cut. We had all nearly been killed. That did not sink in until early middle age, and after that, when I related the anecdote, it was not just for the laughs. In that photograph with me is a buddy, Bill Knight, the top turret gunner that day, who was about two years older than I and already married, with a baby child he had seen but a week, 
and a skitty kid my own age named Howard Snowden, a waste gunner and a radio man from somewhere in Alabama, who would be killed on a mission to Avignon about one month later and died slowly, moaning in pain and whimpering he was cold. We are 20 years old and look like children who are only 20 years old. Howie Snowden was the first dead human I had ever seen and the only dead human I've laid eyes on since outside a mortuary. I was lucky with dead men, said Lou right after the war, a friend since childhood who was taken prisoner as an infantryman and had seen hundreds of dead people in Europe before he was shipped back home, seen Americans and Germans and scores of German civilians in Dresden when he was sent back to help clean up after the British firebombing I learned about first from him an air raid that had killed just about everyone else in the city but these prisoners of war and their guards, and which I did not know about and would not immediately believe. Above a hundred thousand? You must be crazy, Lou. That's more than Hiroshima and the atom bomb. I looked it up and admitted he was right, but that was almost fifty years ago. No wonder our progeny are not much interested in World War Two. Hardly any were born then. They'd be around 50 if they were. But maybe someday, in a future I can't try to measure, one of the children or grandchildren will happen upon that box or a drawer in my, with my gunner's wings, air medal, sergeant stripes, and wartime photograph inside, and perhaps be stimulated to reflect with poignancy on some incidents of a family nature that once took place between us or which never did and should have, like me with my father's gas mask, from World War I. You, as faithful followers of our hero, the Silver King, know that I, as his son, did happen upon that box in a conversation with my mother in Rockford, Illinois, in 2011. Twelve years later, in the spring of 2023, I'm producing this episode, and of course, you must realize that Sammy's words resonate deeply with me as I have followed our hero, the Silver King, over these years to pursue his writing and his war. And just weeks ago, when Kelly and I were in Seattle for a writer's conference, I met a poet named Sean Petrie, who was at the book fair at the writer's conference and was sitting at a typewriter and producing what he was calling his typewriter rodeo. I sat down for a conversation and gave Sean a picture of our hero, the Silver King, with his crew taken at Shreveport and Barksdale Field in the summer of 1944. Sean said his grandfather had been in the war, and he wrote a poem for me. It's called Bombardier for Michael. Take a look at those faces. Zoom in on the grainy black and white, which of course it wasn't. It was full breathing color. And if you can put yourself in that gigantic flying fortress, can you feel the pull of gravity? Can you feel the bump of the clouds and the lump in your throat? So many have a fear of flying, but multiply that by a thousand pounds of bombs and by an entire world war. Can you feel it? Even an inkling of what it must have been like must have taken, just like that grainy black and white. Oh, there is so, so much more. Yes, 
there will always be more to our hero, the Silver King. Seattle, one of our favorite cities in the Pacific Northwest, is the home of Boeing. And we've traveled there often throughout the decades, enjoyed much of the culture. It has a wonderful art museum, and we're devotees of the nightclub, Jazz Alley, and often follow our favorite performers there, including John Pizzarelli and Jessica Malaski. You may recall in our history discussions about Glenn Martin that Martin had a flying student whose name was William Boeing. Boeing, to learn about how to build airplanes, bought one of Glenn Martin's planes after learning to fly and had it shipped by rail to Seattle where he built it again and began what became the tremendous producer of aircraft in Seattle. Now as we continue our celebration of the Silver King's centennial year, I'll share with you that Kelly and I are about to celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. Our honeymoon in 1978 was at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, which of course is where the Wright brothers began their flying lives for real. And you may recall that it was Glenn Martin who wrote the brothers a letter asking for their permission to use their design to build planes. Now, 115 years later, from 1908 to 2023, we have reached the end of this bonus episode of the epilogue for Dearest Ones, the letters that our hero wrote home during the war as we complete his transition from soldier to civilian. Now we will follow Stanley to Chicago and his big city days in 1946. We'll begin with his status as a reserve officer in the Air Corps. The Cold War was heating up in Asia. President Harry Truman wanted the nation prepared for what might be ahead. And you are listening to The Silver King's War. <laughs> 